But I don't. I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This episode is brought to you by The Body Serve merch. <laughs> the debut of our online store. After six, seven years, we have finally debuted Body Serve branded merchandise for you to purchase. We consulted with some of the leading designers in tennis apparel. It was yep. such mm -hmm. hard work behind the scenes with just a gaggle of people putting this together. <laughs> <laughs> that's, not, that's not the case. Right. I think they got that. So we are offering a bunch of swag branded with our traditional logo, which is done by Tom Humberstone. Tom also uh, beefed up our old logo provided some new art for us to feature on the products. And uh, it's pretty cool for us. This was really your baby. You handled this all yourself. I don't, I don't need credit for it. Because then when people don't like it, they'll be coming to me. Just <laughs> oh, like, that's so cynical. I see what you're doing there. You're trying to say, well, yeah, if y'all don't like it, well, um, I had nothing to do with it. I was it. actually trying to it's recognize... all Tom and Jonathan who is responsible. Is that really how you think? Like, because that's kind of, that's deranged. I, I, <laughs> I was actually trying to recognize the hard work you put into this, but... Uh. Check out Tom's work. You can go to TomHumberstone.com and uh, see what he's about. Thank you, Tom. We solicited feedback from you, the listeners on Twitter, as to what kinds of stuff you would want to buy with BodyServe logos on it. And... We weren't able to satisfy all of those requests, like maybe 50% of them. <laughs> and there are a couple of reasons why. We do not have the bandwidth nor the resources to be contracting out apparel, all, this, all these different kinds of merchandise, have them shipped to our house and then turn our house into like a, what do you call it, like a shipping unit, you know, like a depot. Yeah, that, that's the way to, to maximize profit from doing this kind of thing. We went with the least profitable way to do this, which was to outsource all of the printing, the manufacturing, and the shipping. We end up getting like a small cut of the overall cost of what it is that you purchase. But uh, we felt that the promotional side of it was what was most important to us at this point. Because we will ask that if you have BodyServe t-shirts and merch, that you take them to tennis tournaments that you wear or insignia or logo with pride. <laughs> we got it out just in time for the second half of this Pride Month. It's, it's been a pretty flop Pride Month in general because Toronto is still mostly shut down. So this is like some of the small joys we've been able to grab this year. You all wanted visors. We were unable to do that. Tennis balls unable to do that these what like what third-party sites you might call them they don't really spe specialize in tennis merch per right. se 
And they all have their own pros and cons. So I think we've talked about kind of the next phase of merch after this one. And that might be where we can explore different options for like visors, text, you yeah. know, popular sayings that people wanted to see on t-shirts and stuff like that. So this is the the first run, the simple classic logo look. There are a lot of websites similar to Redbubble, which is what we went with, that offer this kind of service. The reason why we went with Redbubble was the design interface was easier to use on our end. And also their shipping is more accessible than most of the other sites. And when I say that, I mean, we didn't want to go with a website that would end up prioritizing or North American listeners. Redbubble has printing and shipping locations in multiple countries. And so depending on the item that you're ordering, you'll be able to get it at a lower shipping cost than say if we went with an estate side apparel company. So at the risk of this episode sounding like a long advertisement, uh, we were are just going to refer you to the link at Redbubble if you are interested in BodyServe products. Uh, we'll link that on the episode preview. Or you can just go to your Google search and type in redbubble.com and the BodyServe. You should be able to find us pretty easily that way. This episode also functions as our Wimbledon preview as well as the truncated grass season recap. <laughs> yeah, we have not recorded an episode since the end of the French Open, which was barely 10 days ago anyway. Before we get into the Wimbledon draws, we're going to go through the results of the last couple of weeks. The tournaments happening currently this week have not finished yet. This is Friday at 5.52 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in Canada. Uh, most, well, all of the tournaments have reached the final stage. In Mallorca, Daniil Medvedev is going to be playing Sam Query. Novak Djokovic is at this tournament, or was at this tournament, but only played doubles. He, in fact, made the final of this tournament, but his partner, Carlos Gomez Herrera, had to pull out with injury before the final. Also at this tournament, Dominic Team showed up and had to retire mid-match in his opening match after suffering a wrist injury which then led him to subsequently withdraw from Wimbledon. And it looks like it could be a pretty extended period of injury for for team with this wrist setback that he's had. Sam Query has come out of nowhere, basically, to reach the final here. You can always rely on him to make people's lives very difficult on grass. You know, he's beaten Novak Djokovic on at Wimbledon before. He lands in a section of the draw where he could cause a lot of problems for seeded players, which we'll get to a bit later. He plays well on grass. He has the tools to play well on grass. I believe he made the quarters in 2019 where Rafa beat him. So this is not a surprising result. What we'll see through some of these results and what we talk about with the Wimbledon draw, we have folks whose games are definitely suited to this time of year. And it's not a surprise that Kanta won Nottingham two weeks ago. That makes sense. It's not a surprise that Query is in this final. But having lost the grass season last year, it's really hard to know where some of these players are going to be. And Kanta really surprised me because she has had a string of poor results off grass. She's always reliable in these English tournaments, 
but who knew where her game was going to be on the surface after such a long layoff? Uh, people like Ostapenko, who have had excellent results on grass before, look what she's done this week. So there is some predictability based on prior performance on the surface. And then other things are complete surprises. Medvedev seems to be on a mission to prove that he can play on any surface. Right, but then you also have a whole batch, a big batch of players on both tours who've never played on grass before, really. Osorio Serrano said recently that she's essentially a fish out of water on grass. Mm -hmm. She has no idea what she's doing. She's just playing tennis and just dealing with it. So I think there's more of a of a safety net knowing that you've done well on grass before, that being a bigger advantage than somebody like Sviantek or Andrescu or Osorio Serrano. All these players who've never really played on grass before, it takes a lot more to figure it out for the first time than to come back from a long layoff because you're able to, to rely on those familiar feelings of the surface. Being able to play good grass court tennis takes a while because folks just don't have many opportunities to do it. Even if you're on tour for a decade, you only have two to three weeks every year to play grass court tennis. And a lot of folks don't even want to play that much because you're coming right off the French Open, this long extended clay court season. You need a week or two off, ideally. The difference between the surfaces is so stark that I can also see how it might be overwhelming to even put in the effort <laughs> to mm. to try and learn a new surface in such a short in a short time yeah we're back this year to the two-week layoff between Roland Garros and Wimbledon which we had for many decades but for young players it's going to feel like a really quick turnaround and you know for a long long time it made that channel slam such a, an incredible achievement in tennis because it was such a drastic turnaround Luckily, there's not a whole lot of travel involved, but you mentioned Shiontek. She made the first round in Wimbledon in 2019, and that's pretty much it. Bianca Andreescu has played one main draw at Wimbledon. These are top players, but they are fairly new to the surface. So I agree. Like If you're someone who can draw on past success on the surface, even if your form is not that great right now, you may be at a little bit of an advantage. It's also why somebody like Svetlana Pironkova always seems to do well at this tournament. Mm -hmm. I think with practice, most top players can be good on the surface. Good to very good. Because when you get down to it, it is tennis. Like, they know how to play tennis. They just have to acclimate to different conditions. Yes and no. There's so many little things that if you can master a couple of them on this surface can really set you apart and give you that that advantage in your back pocket while playing grass court tennis. Mm. If you're a lefty and you can slice that serve wide, that's a big advantage on this surface. If you have a big serve that's reliable, that's a huge advantage on this surface. If you're somebody like Angelique Kerber who has a low center of gravity, who can play, who's comfortable playing low to the ground, that's a huge advantage. If you're just going to show up and say, well, I'm going to try and bomb, bomb, bomb and hope for the best, it's probably not going to help you out because with grass court tennis, there's also fewer opportunities to turn things around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Be prepared. Things can disappear very slowly. Be slow, prepared quickly. for quick, quick matches on this surface. Every year, I'm always 
resurprised. 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 <laughs> by how fast these matches go. Yeah, even though the grass is supposedly slower than it used to be, and I think you can see that, and the ace rates and all that stuff, I think it bears out. It still is a very quick surface, and it favors people who uh, can move swiftly and can adjust. And in you know, in the past few decades, it hasn't necessarily been the domain of big servers. That's definitely an advantage, but especially on the WTA side, you see a lot of different styles of play that can win on grass. Mm-hmm. Just think how many 90-minute sets we had on clay mm-hmm. this past spring. We will not see that on grass courts. Oh, good. In Bad Homburg, Angelique Kerber is in the final against Sinyakova. This is a welcomed resurgence from Angelique Kerber, and it, it came at the perfect time this grass court season. She's into her first final since 2019 during the grass season. And her mm-hmm. last title was 2018 Wimbledon Championships. Given that there was no grass season last year, she's made a final in three consecutive grass court seasons. That's not nothing. The grass <laughs> court season is short. And so we can see clearly that she is a formidable grass court player still. Uh, obviously, she's a former champ at Wimbledon. Today, she beat a two-time champion of Wimbledon, Petra Kvitova, in a long three-set match. This after playing the quarterfinal earlier in the day because of rain on Thursday. Mm-hmm. She beat Anisimova in the quarterfinal, coming back from a set down, and then beat Kvitova coming back from a set down in the semifinal. She has been runner-up at Eastbourne three times. She's won Birmingham in 2015. If Angie is feeling herself on grass, forget it. Like, this is somebody to be afraid of. At peaking just in time to face Serena in the third round of Wimbledon, potentially. Peaking might be a bit of a stretch right now, but good for her. That's a pessimistic fan point of view, Mm. bleeding through there. What she's able to do so well on grass, aside from make the most of her, her serve relative to any other surface, is redirect the ball with pace from the baseline. You can see her seemingly out of position or in a defensive spot and she's able to turn the pace that's coming at her and redirect it into an attacking position for herself. Mm -hmm. In Eastbourne, we've seen the resurgence of Yelena Ostapenko. She is just shocking and delighting the old folks in the crowds at Eastbourne. By shocking, do you mean startling? Yes. As she screams at them? Yes. Uh, she, I mean, she's doing full Ostapenko here with the game, uh, with the antics, with fighting with Anshabor's coaching staff, fighting with referees. But this woman is a semifinalist at Wimbledon back in 2018. Like, she can play on the surface. And this week alone, she's beaten Pavlyuchenkova, Jabor, who just won Birmingham, Kazakina, who was the runner-up in Birmingham, and today, Rybakina. Also peaking on grass right now is Camila Georgi. She won two qualifying matches in Eastbourne, making it all the way to the semifinals, beating Pliskova, Shelby Rogers, and then Sabalenka yesterday in three sets before retiring against Kontovic today. So I, I hope that it's not a serious injury situation because that would suck after mm-hmm. this kind of performance. 
it didn't appear to be, but you never, you really never know just looking at someone. On the ATP side in Eastbourne, the newly minted best rapper on the ATP, Lorenzo Sonigo, is in a final versus Alex Di Menauer. It's not even close. It's not. Like, Sonigo released the song of the summer. It's a bop, it's a jam, it's a banger. It's the first of these ATP releases that you could feasibly imagine hearing it on the radio. Not even feasibly. It belongs on the radio. (laughs) Every time one of these things come out, I'm just kind of side-eyeing it and listening to it, just waiting to laugh at it or be like, okay, that's cute. But like, I pressed play and within a few seconds, I'm like, okay, it's got this reggaeton kind of sensibility, which is not my bag typically, but he made it work. Mm -hmm. It sounded like it could be on the radio. And I feel Italian flows a little better with a reggaeton beat because it's very similar to Spanish. And uh, it's hard to rap in Italian and make it sound how you want it to sound. He's not trying to rap. No. He's he's actually singing on this song as well. Yes. Like, it's crazy. It's kind of like a, like a dance hall artist toasting because they all, they sing and they rap. And I know on the, in the past... I've said that he reminds me of Ralph Macchio in The Karate Kid. Mm -hmm. So he gives that aesthetic. And I've also said that Denis Shapovalov was giving Karate Kid vibes with his cut, his new haircut and the headband. And now we have the two Karate Kids in a battle, in an ATP (laughs) musician battle. And there is only one winner here. It's a TKO. It's a flawless victory. It's a wig snatching for the ages. If Dennis is Cobra Kai, Lorenzo is the other one. Which whatever one? they are, I forget. I don't know the the good ones. Yeah, <laughs> like the the one that the Karate Kid belonged to. Oh my god, <laughs> that movie was released before I was born. Okay, there were several of them. That's not an. Excuse. I didn't see any of them. I saw the Jaden Smith remake, reboot, and that was like the sixth one. <laughs> All right, last week we had Halle, Birmingham, Berlin, and Queens, of course. So you have these two classic grass court lead-ups in Queens and Halle, formerly the Jerry Weber Open. Federer is the king of Halle, obviously. But we get Umber and Rublev in the final. Federer lost in three sets to Felix Auger-Alessim. Felix going on to make the semifinal, I believe, before losing to Umber. In that final in Halle, where Umber beats Rublev, did you see Mr. Rublev at that trophy presentation? Oh, oh my. It was giving emo, goth kid realness. It was giving existential pain and drama. Can you imagine if he'd had to go, go through that nine, eight, nine times like Felix has? <laughs> right. <laughs> Staying in Germany for a minute, Berlin, the tournament that... By God, we will get to someday because we have to, literally have to, because we have a voucher. Not for the tour. For the hotel. <laughs> what an almighty run by Miss Suitcase. Like, this was incredible. Yeah, I will take credit for this nickname. I think this is me. Yes, it uh, is you. Samsonova. Not to be confused with Samsonite. I'm so sorry. Uh, I don't want to take any attention away from her great tennis that mm-hmm. week. 
by reaching the final, beating Kanyo, who is another player who is resurgent, Vondrosova, Kudamartova, Madison Keys, Vika Azarenka, and Belinda Bencic. Okay, now take a breath. <laughs> Bencic is another player who's very comfortable on the surface, having been the runner-up uh, in Mallorca two years ago. What we're seeing, and Samsonova is a good example of this, at least on the WTA side, is that the big hitters have been doing pretty well. Save for Kerber. Right. I'm also surprised to learn that Anna Kanye is still only like, what, 23? It mm. seems like she's been around forever. Also at this tournament, we had the unfortunate and awkward situation where Bianca Andrescu loses on her birthday. But the tournament had already organized for the live band to sing her happy birthday on court after the match. So Bianca is just sitting there looking bewitched, bothered, and very bewildered. In tears after the match. Yeah. Like, that must have felt like the twilight zone for her. Like, what is going on? And it felt like a David Lynch film. It felt very morbid, uh, but man, that video is going to be circulated for years to come. Benchich, we'll talk a little bit more about her as we head into the women's draw. She's been mentioned a lot on the podcast recently. Not all Mostly good. <laughs> for some of the stuff that she said, but she's also had a string of good results. She's playing a lot better. Yeah, so she's, we're gonna. She's back to being top ten, Belinda. We're gonna keep it on the court this time. In Birmingham, a big, big result, one that's been threatening to hatch and snatch for a long time now. Ons Jabur wins her very first WTA title, beating Dasha Kazatkina in straight sets. Dasha, for her part, has won two titles already this year. She's a runner-up here. It's great to see her career back on track in a serious way. But Anshabur is one of those players who you just kind of assumed had a title to her name. But she's become the first Arab woman to do basically everything in tennis. Well, you may assume that because you've been hearing a lot of her in the last year and a half. And she's been at the back end of a lot of these smaller tournaments, just unable to get the job mm. done. She made the final at Charleston 2 earlier in the spring. Per WTA insider Courtney Nguyen, she's the first Arab woman to win a junior Grand Slam. That was in 2011 at Roland Garros. The first to make a Slam third round, 2017 Roland Garros. First to make a Slam quarterfinal last year at the 2020 Australian Open. And at that time, when the pandemic hit, you were like, I remember saying, well, this really sucks for her because she has such great momentum this is somebody who's clearly figured something out and her career is about to take off. And then she has this a big time interruption, but she's been able to resume and recapture her momentum post pandemic. And she's also the first Arab woman to be ranked inside the top 70, currently her highest ever rank at number 24. Guess who's back? Well, I know because it's written. Mm -hmm. Colleen Coco Vandeway is back. And to be fair, she has been back on tour for a little while now, but if you're not a diehard fan of women's tennis, you may not have noticed. She's played a pretty full schedule since March, but the, her week in Birmingham was really her 
her big breakthrough again, her re-breakthrough. She qualified in Birmingham. She reached the semifinals. I heard this interesting story from Coco that was covered on the Fantastic Tennis podcast, where last summer she was microwaving soup in a bowl. And when she took it out, the bowl exploded in her hand and severed two ligaments and a nerve in her hand, which is really scary stuff for Mm. anybody who plays a racket sport. Listen, microwaves can be very dangerous. Have you ever tried to cook an egg in a microwave? Like that stuff is touch and go. (laughs) I'm telling you, I am shocked. When I heard Coco's story, I'm shocked that I have never done this because I have done it all in the kitchen. The fantastic tennis podcast that you just mentioned is like us, a a gay run podcast. So Mm -hmm. happy Pride Month to us. (laughs) The host, John, normally co-hosts with a a new fan each episode and they've gotten uh, amazing guests a lot of great female tennis players marion bartoli coco lindsey davenport Zena garrison like we did so that was a little sidebar to promote a fellow lgbtq podcast but coco recovered from that pretty devastating hand microwave injury she's back on tour and she's been playing you know, a mix of ITFs, Challengers, WTA, but Birmingham was really her big breakthrough coming back from uh, a pretty wretched past few years dealing with injuries. Mm -hmm. She had that great 2017 and then it's just been a very unkind period to her in her tennis career. Mm -hmm. In Queens, Andy Murray was back. Sir Andrew beat Benoit Paire in his first match, then had the bad luck to play Matteo Berrettini, losing in straight sets. Uh, Berrettini, talk about somebody who has really reversed the the story on him, right? There were many, many months where folks were disappointed in his trajectory. For a and while, now, it was all you could talk about on the show. <laughs> but now, I mean, he's back. Like, he's making headlines. He somehow has become one of the presumptive favorites at Wimbledon. Well, he's probably leading the pack way below the pack leader. Yes, but, you know, not not a bad number two. But for Andy Murray, he gets this win, loses to Berrettini, but even in that loss, his movement looks great. He said he felt good recovering from that first match, and he gave an emotional interview after the first match, letting us know again that he's not taking any of these moments for granted, that he wishes during his successful runs during his earlier career, that he had taken a little bit more time to smell the roses. Because now it's all he wants to do. Like, it means so much to him to be able to to experience this again. Love a man who can cry. I think it's time to move on to the draws. We'll start on the men's side, where I can't recall a Grand Slam on the men's side where there has been as big a favorite to win a title. Uh, I mean... It sounds silly to say that this is not a super strong field that the men are giving us because we have a five-time champ, we have an eight-time champ. The thing is the five-time champ is like the far and away favorite and there's a pretty big drop-off after him. Right. Grass court tennis, having the acumen, the aptitude, it's not a skill that many people have. It takes a while to develop. And especially on the men's side, the big serve is a huge weapon. 
Yeah, so you're really looking at the players who have the pedigree and the players who have the big weapon. As far as pedigree goes, Novak Djokovic can do anything on a tennis court. He is incredibly accomplished on grass. Novak started hitting his second serve in a similar way to his first a few years ago, and this has made him really, really difficult to beat on any surface, but, you know, as his career has gone on, on grass. The last time there was a men's final at Wimbledon, Novak beat Federer in that long five-set final that was determined by the, what, 12-ball tiebreak? That was 2019. That feels like oh, a I long time. No, I'm telling you. That was a long time ago where Federer had, mm-hmm. I believe, two match points and lost that match. The other player with the pedigree is Roger Federer. The problem is Roger Federer comes in undercooked, coming off surgeries, coming off a long time off tour. It'll help him that grass court matches are shorter, but like losing to Felix in Hala won't necessarily give him the preparation he was hoping for, I'd assume. Mm -hmm. And I think what the result is, is you get a draw that feels a little bit popped down, maybe compared to the women's draw. It feels like a little bit of the wind has been taken out of it, especially with Nadal and team withdrawing before the tournament. Team was arguably never going to be a factor to begin with. Sure, not to win. Uh, He doesn't have astonishing results at Wimbledon. But Nadal pulling out uh, takes a little bit of the mystery out of this draw analysis. Mm -hmm. A healthy Nadal at Wimbledon is still a huge difficulty. Mm. In 2018, he pushed Novak to five sets in that semifinal. And so with the absence of so many players, it just creates more wiggle room for the prohibitive favorite, as well as the players who stand a good chance. Mm. And it so happens that a lot of those players with the big serve tend to not have the higher ranking. Right. So there's a lot more wiggle room for that in the opening rounds to get to the back end of the tournament than previously. That said, the pressure will be very, very high for Djokovic, which is something he's used to, but we have this extra wrinkle. People are already talking about the potential golden slam. So that is something that's going to be weighing on him. In addition to the PTPA stuff that it's blowing up. In addition to tying Nadal and Federer with 20 Grand Slams. Right. Even for someone like Novak, it's got to be a lot. Mm -hmm. He opens against Jack Draper, who is a wild card recipient. Second round, Kevin Anderson, who's still making his way back from injury and has not done anything really this year. A former finalist, a couple years ago, you'd say like, wow, this is a tough ask for Djokovic. But in the current state of his game this is not the kevin anderson that we know in the third round slated to draw 30 seed davidovich fokina at the french open he lost meekly we learned he was injured then the next time we see him against vashik pospisil he loses the first set and then retires so he's clearly not right physically and in the fourth round the seed he's slated to meet is gal mofis who struggled mightily mm-hmm. the other seeds in there Christian Garin, who excels more so on clay. And even then, struggles Mm -hmm. at Grand Slams. And so in in that round of 16, to get to the quarterfinals, it's, I would say, a wide open plane 
for Novak Djokovic. Yeah, I think he really couldn't have asked for a better journey to the fourth round. In the quarterfinals, he the seed he could face is Andre Rublev, who was just a runner-up at a grass court tournament last week. There's Yannick Sinner, Diego Schwartzman, Fabio Fognini. But in general, when you think of the people he could have seen, he could have drawn Roger Federer, Berrettini, or his nemesis RBA in the quarterfinals, and he did not. Honestly, I would look to either Fognini or Rublev from that mm-hmm. section to get yeah. through to the quarterfinals. In the second quarter, that's headlined by Stefano Tsitsipas and Roberto Bautista Agut. This is infinitely more interesting, this quarter. At the very top, that first round, Tsitsipas versus Francis Tiafo. Mm-hmm. That is a first-round match to watch, because Francis, he tells us he's comfortable on grass, and you never know. You just never right. know. And I- Stefanos is coming off a long, long clay court season culminating in that French Open final where he went five sets. It's not a guarantee that he's able to come back and make a deep run here on grass. Francis just won the Nottingham Challenger during the second week of Roland Garros. He is in form on grass. We know that. It'll still be a very tall order, but it's an interesting matchup. Vashik Pospisil is in there the co-president of the PTPA. This is also the court of the draw that has Andy Murray. He opens against a seeded player, number 24, Nicolas Basilashvili. We have a very strong rooting interest in this match, needless to say. In Tsitsipas's eighth of the draw, we've also got Alex Diemenauer, who is the finalist this week in Eastbourne. He opens against Sebastian Corda. Uh, there's Dan Evans who starts against Feliciano Lopez, who is feels very much at home on the surface, but who is also like 37 years old. At least. At, you're right, at the very least. In this in this section of the draw, I look to somebody like Riley Opelka, who has that big serve, who has been playing well this year. And if somebody like Shapovalov isn't able to put it together, if Murray is out early... If Tsitsipas is out early, you can see somebody like Opelka with that big serve making his way to the quarterfinals. It's the, it's a tournament where this historically happens. Yeah, yeah. Ivan Isovic made many, many, many Wimbledon finals. I believe it was four before he finally won. Kevin Anderson has made the final here. Sam Querrey has made deep runs. Did you mention who Andy was opening against? Yes, Basilash really. Oh, okay. I just wanted to emphasize how upsetting that is. I even said we have a very strong rooting interest in that match. Sorry, I guess I wasn't listening. RBA is the number eight seed. He was a semifinalist in 2019 at Wimbledon. Uh, His second round, he could play Ketsmanovic, who is not a slouch on the surface. He was uh, the runner-up in Antalya in 2019 on grass. But I think that, you know, that bottom part with Shapovalov, Opelka, RBA... I would kind of expect the big server to come out of that, but you really never know. In the third quarter, that's where the person that everybody is trying to hide from resides, Matteo Berrettini. All of a sudden, seemingly overnight, he has become the second, if not the third favorite to win this tournament as the number seven seed. Yeah, I, I think it would be disrespectful to put him ahead of Roger, right? Just because you bet on people who have done it before. Or know how to do it. But he's in incredible form. 
And look who he drew, the unseated Guido Pela, who you may have forgotten was a Wimbledon quarterfinalist the last time this tournament was played. Now, his results of late have not been good. He lost his first two rounds on grass this season. But again, it's somebody who feels comfortable on the surface. It's also where John Isner is. Again, the huge serving. Berrettini would be slated to fit to play him in the third round. This is the tournament where Isner has had his best Grand Slam result, making the semifinals in 2018. And playing a match so long that they changed the rules of the sport. He's only made three quarterfinals in his career at his very large age of 36. I should know. (laughs) (laughs) How large that age is? How large that age is. (laughs) So on the one hand, the odds of him making another quarterfinal? Slim. But if he were to do it, this is where he'd be best suited to do it. Yeah. This is also where Felix Auger-Lessim is in the draw. He opens against Tiago Montero. Potentially, Joe Wilfried Songa in the second round, should Songa get by Michael Lemer. Nick Kyrgios reappears in tennis. <laughs> Nick Kyrgios has played two tournaments since the pandemic break. He lost to Dominic Team in the Australian Open, as you reminded me. I mean, these things just slip out of my brain lately. But he's back, people are excited, and who does he draw but a very recent champion on grass, Hugo Umber. In uh, the third round, should he get there, should he get past Umber in the first round, he would likely play Felix in the third round. Mm -hmm. Also in that quarter is Z, Zed. Yeah, so that guy has been bumped up to a cushy top four seed because his friend Dominic Team has withdrawn from the tournament. He could play Taylor Fritz in the third round. Taylor is... Coming back from a surgery, I believe. Yeah, he had knee surgery and he's like 10 days later out on the tennis yeah. court hitting. So I was like, oh, he may be back for the US Open. And then I look mm. and I see him in this draw. <laughs> a Taylor won his first tournament at Eastbourne in 2019. But it is uh, anyone's guess how he's going to play at this tournament. I think it would be very unlikely that he has a deep run here. Yeah, yeah. But... Uh, you know, if Felix and that other guy get to the fourth round, I think you have a real match there. And the winner of that would potentially play Bertini or Kaspar Ruud. Or John, don't forget about John Isner. Or John Isner. In the final quarter, that's where the Swiss mister resides. Roger Federer, the number six seed, opening against Adrian Manorino. A tough ask, if you ask me. Yeah. He just made the semifinals in Mallorca. And he likes playing... At this tournament, he's reached the fourth round three times. Mm -hmm. Should Federer get through that, he has the winner of Richard Gasquet or Yuichi Sugita in the second round before potentially playing Cam Nori in the third round. And in the fourth round, likely Karenia Busta or Sam Querrey. So Federer's run, his path is littered with, (laughs) what, time bombs, mine bombs? Landmines. Landmines. Mm -hmm. Now, okay, you are correct that by seed, Pablo Carreño Busta would be his fourth round opponent. But did you know that Pablo has never been past the first round at Wimbledon? Okay, but he's coming off of a, I believe, a quarterfinal at least this week. He's won a couple matches, so Mm. that's not nothing. I'm just saying. But I think we need to look at Sam Querrey is PCB's first round opponent. We know that Sam is in good form. 
And we know that Lorenzo Sonigo is also in good form. Mm-hmm. Queries in the final in Mallorca and Carreño Busta made the semifinal in Mallorca. And, and they come back and play first round at Wimbledon. Right. And Sonigo is currently in the final at Eastbourne. This one, this section here has m- maybe the most options for somebody coming through, I think. Medvedev playing well. Chilich has been playing well again. Bublik is in this section. Muzetti, Urkac, Query, Sonego, Nori, Federer. Did you say Grigor? I didn't. Oh. Maybe that's wow. rude. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. You know, Medvedev has the, I guess you could say, misfortune of possibly facing Marin Cilich in the third round. Cilic coming off that victory at Stuttgart a few weeks ago. Medvedev has, as I said earlier, seemed to be bent on proving people wrong and maybe proving himself wrong. You know, he hated clay, he couldn't play on clay, and then he did pretty well. On grass, he's, you know, I think he might kind of storm through here with little drama, similarly to how he did in Rolling Girls. Mm, we shall see. We always enjoy circling first round matches it's kind of like the first look that's the first thing we do when looking through a draw and there are just so many more blockbusters it seems in the women's draw there are so many dangerous floaters who are unseated and right at the top of the draw we have ash barty versus carla suarez navarro who will be playing her final wimbledon she just played her final rolling girls and gave sloan stevens a real run for her money you know we expect ash to get through Provided she's healthy. And that's a big question mark with her. This match is more about intrigue than really potential upset for me. Right. Ash is rocking this gorgeous design from Fila that is inspired by one of the most legendary tennis dresses worn by Ivan Gulagong. Somebody to look for this tournament, Joe Kanta, in that section, opening against Sinyakova, who is in the final tomorrow against Angelique Kerber. Kiki Burtons, who announced that this is going to be her final year on tour. This will be her final Wimbledon. She opens against Marta Kostyuk. Tough match for her. You could see Kostyuk really making a run here. If mm-hmm. Barty isn't healthy, if Burtons hasn't found form. Krejcikova is in this section as well. She opens against Clara Towson. Who is a big hitter who could find herself at home on a fast surface like this. Keep an eye out for Victoria Azarenka and her injury status because she had to withdraw from her last match with some kind of abdominal or side issue. That doesn't bode well mm. with such a short turnaround before the tournament starts, which is bad luck for her because she's been playing pretty well in the grass. Coco Vandeway is also slotted in there. She could face either Siniakova or Kanta in the second round. Ash Barty would be the third round. They have won a major together in doubles the two and a half years ago. For me, in the women's draw, I have a lot of folks to look at. So many people who could do well. And what that leads to on my draw sheet is a lot of question marks later on in the tournament. There are a few slots where I just have like question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> and who, who gets to that fourth round where it would typically... By seed be Victoria Azarenka or Annette Kontovate? Who knows? Same goes in that second section where you have Dasha Kasatkina, who might play Ostapenko in the second round. You've got 
Andrescu there as well. Who knows? And Cornet. I think you could consider both Kazatkina and Ostapenko dark horses for this tournament. Ostapenko has beaten Kazatkina over the past week. Right, but Ostapenko opens against Leila Fernandez. Mm-hmm. Andrescu will open against Alize Cornet, who recently beat her in Berlin. Cornet is exactly the type of player to make a deep run here. Somebody who has a lot of experience, a lot of weapons, can assess a situation in a match more so than some of the younger players on grass. So by seed, Bianca would be the player to face Barty in the quarterfinals. But really, your guess is as good as mine going into this tournament. In the second quarter, that's where Serena Williams is. The other top seed in that section is number three, Elena Svitolina. Number three. Uh, You know, Elena has not really been playing like a number three seeded player lately. She has Paula Badosa in her section there. She has Amanda Inisimova. When we move a little further down, we have two quarterfinalists from 2019 Wimbledon, Muchova and Zhang Shui, playing each other in the first round, which is pretty rough. And then whoever wins that is going to have to play Camila Georgi in the second round. Svetlina herself opens up against von Oitfank, which, <laughs> I mean... That is not fun for anybody on grass, specifically. Yeah. And Svetlina is a number three seed here because we know Naomi Osaka will not be playing. And just today, we learned of the withdrawal of the defending champion, Simona Halep. In Svetlina's section, she has some really difficult customers on grass, specifically. And then in general. So, Mukhova, Georgie, Zhang Shui, Pavlyuchenkova could face one of those people in the third round. And if Svitolina gets to the quarterfinals, it certainly does not get easier. So number nine, Belinda Bencic, and Serena Williams, who is number six, bookend that final section in the top half. By saying that, you're saying that Bencic and Serena are slated to meet in the round of 16. But for Bencic to get there, she'd likely have to beat Coco Goff in the third round. And for Serena to get there... She'd likely have to beat Angelique Kerber in the third round, the woman she beat in the 2016 Wimbledon final, and the woman who beat her in the 2018 Wimbledon final. And we talked about Kerber's grass prowess a little bit earlier on in the show. Both Kerber and Serena Williams have grass skills that speak for themselves. Obviously, they've been proven many, many times. Kerber has just proved it more recently. (laughs) <laughs> which makes probably makes Serena fans a bit nervous. More recently in that. As in this week. This week. Because yes. <laughs> let's not forget Serena is the defending finalist at this oh, tournament. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. In the third quarter, this one is, uh, I hate to say it, but it is such a prime opportunity for Madison Keys. Like, my God. Oh, is that who you Madison could get her game together... There's so many wide open spaces here. She opens against Katie Swan. Second round against Jody Burridge of Great Britain. A wild card. Or Lauren Davis. Third round, Elisa Mertens. Okay. Tough ask. Mm-hmm. But reasonable. At There's the also potentially Kennan in the fourth round. And then where it gets potentially an open road for a semifinal run is at the top of that quarter 
is Karolina Pliskova, who has never made the second week at Wimbledon, who is opening against Zidanecek, has to maybe play one of the very few grass specialists on the WTA Tour, Donna Vekic, in the second round. Mm-hmm. And then another grass court specialist, if don't she's say feeling it. Don't it. say it. She hasn't Allison been feeling Risk. it. It hasn't been happening. It's not going to happen. It hasn't. No, but it is kind of surprising that Carolina, her best results here were two fourth rounds in 2018 and 2019, and that's it. Skitty low balls. It's not a good yeah, recipe yeah. for her. Jessica Pagula is the other one to look at here who could throw this entire section into disarray by taking out Kvitova in the third round. Mm-hmm. But has a difficult first round against Garcia, would have a difficult second round against either Samsonova or Kanepi. Okay. Any of those players can do the damage whereby it's keys against somebody beatable in the quarterfinals. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying. We've seen Madison play a little bit better recently. This is a big opportunity. Petra opens against Sloane Stevens. Never count out Sloane. There's also Heather Watson, who's played well at Wimbledon before, likes the grass. Mm-hmm. She opens against Christy Ahn. Almost beat Serena that year of the almost calendar year Grand Slam. That would be Kvitova's second round opponent, potentially. So there, there's a lot of stuff going on in this quarter. And that's before you even talk about Sonia Kennan. Right, right. I was going to say that Pliskova benefited from being bumped up to a number eight seed, but I'm not really sure she did. I don't think any she... section would have been a benefit to her no, in this tournament. No. So in that final quarter, the, the bottom quarter here, we've got Arena Sabalenka as the number two seed and Iga Sviantek as the seven. Now we've said before that Sviantek's experience on grass is minimal because of her age and because of the cancellation last year. Her best result is just a first round, just dipping her toe in the main draw Mm. in 2019. And she has not looked great on grass Mm -hmm. this season in the lead-up tournaments. What we have in this section is a bunch of players who've been some of the best players on tour this year. Sviantek, Jabur, Muguruza, Sakari, Alexandrova, Rybakina, Sabalenka. All in this final quarter, who is best recovered from injury? Looking at Muguruza there, who is best suited to grass? Who can translate their mostly hardcore prowess to date into grass success? I would have put a lot of stock in Rabakina, but it seems that she has actually sustained an injury this week. And so this kind of leads me to Jabur in this section. Mm. And keep an eye out for, I know the last time she played... She had to retire from injury, and that's been an unfortunate recurrence for her in her comeback. But Vera's Vanareva is in this quarter as well. Somebody with a lot of experience playing on grass. And somebody for whom the lack of power can be less of a de- deficiency on this surface. Mm. Sviantek opens against Shea That is a recipe for disaster. <laughs> Shea is a, a doubles champion at Wimbledon, I believe. This is a site... The tournament where Shea gave us that legendary quip. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> That's enough draw talk. We have some etceteras to get to. And we get to talk about one of your favorite things on earth. Yes, anti-doping. More specifically. Doping. More specifically. Yastramska. Yes. Got it. Yastramska is winning. Okay. Her sex excuse worked. Am I the first person to say that? Joy comes in the morning. Somebody Maybe, came. Maybe, literally. 
Yastremska won her appeal. The Independent Tribunal of the Tennis Anti-Doping Program. You got all that? The tribunal concluded that although Yastremska did commit a violation, she bears, quote, no fault or negligence. And therefore, there's no period of ineligibility and she is free to compete. She had claimed that misterolone entered her body through sexual intercourse with an ex-partner. That is a direct quote from Ms. Yastremska, lest you think we're making it up. Kids at home, wrap it up. That's one of the lessons to be learned from this whole saga. As if you needed one more reason. Now you have secondhand steroid exposure. Mm. Sexually transmitted steroids. Uh, (laughs) Shall I go on? I do love that she was willing to lay it all on the line and be very honest about what's going on to get her name cleared. And not only did she say that privately behind closed doors at the tribunal, she shared all of that with us in the press and on social media. Two things. This is not slut-shaming. Have all the sex no, you want. Have definitely. all of it with as many people as you want. Just, like, be safe about it. And then, two, she told us she was going to be innocent, and she was proven to be, quote-unquote, innocent. Credit where it's due. Proven uh, to be exonerated. Well, this is the thing, right? With anti-doping, they still maintain that she is guilty of committing an offense mm-hmm. under Article 2.1, which is the one that explains banned substances. This is under the WADA anti-doping protocol. You can read it online for free if you're interested. So she did commit an offense, so it does count as one. Like going forward, if she commits another offense, it's not going to be expunged from her record. It's still there, but they Like will... if she eats a contaminated half-moon cookie? Exactly. The thing is, with this decision, is that it came out just a little bit too late for her to enter into Wimbledon. It came out the day after Wimbledon had wrapped up its entry list. Well, the way she tells it, it's as if Wimbledon knew this was coming and they were like, I'm pulling you before you get the chance to show up with your miss. Miss Diana always has a colorful way of telling stories, but she says... She has a beautiful signature, though. I love it. (laughs) She's famous. It's called an autograph, not a signature. (laughs) She said on social media that Wimbledon withdrew her entry from the tournament just hours before the decision was issued. That makes it sound like there was malicious intent. Uh, We don't know what happened, but uh, I think it was just a a case of bad timing. Talking about timing, the PTPA has resurfaced. And why I find the timing of that a little bit strange is not that they've wheeled and come again. It's why they haven't wheeled and come again sooner. It seems that one of the big pushes with this reemergence of PTPA is to thwart this vote that's happening at Wimbledon by the ATP mm-hmm. to secure mm-hmm. this 30-year 30 30 deal, right? They've made the, the PTPA is making this big push to say, del- delay the vote, hashtag delay the vote. This is the reason, delay the vote. This is happening maximum five days out from the start of the tournament, If this is such a huge thing imperiling the future of tennis for 30 years, what took so long? Okay, let's let's start at the beginning. So the PTPA came out this week, and it turns out they have been doing quite a lot of work in the background when many people in tennis were wondering, like, what's going on? They were hiring an executive director, an advisory board. They were securing legal counsel. 
They announced this week that they have appointed an executive director, who is Adam Larry. He was actually the associate counsel at the NHLPA, the NHL Players Union, for over 10 years he worked there. They've got a director of communications who's from a big LA PR firm. They've got a full advisory board, including a billionaire tennis fanatic named Bill Ackman. I wasn't familiar with Mr. Ackman, but Laura Wagner's piece in The Defector has a number of delightful anecdotes about the gentleman. Uh, Katerina Pietlovich, who is also on the advisory board, is a sports law and policy professor. So they have done some homework. They've also gotten men and women to comprise this advisory board. Yes. They held a press conference today, actually, and said that WTA players are involved and that the board will be equally represented by men and women. Meanwhile, I'm not seeing any WTA players tweet about this. I'm seeing ATP players tweet about this. All I'm hearing is what amounts to lip service. That's how I receive it. Because I haven't seen anything specific in writing, nor have I heard from WTA players that they're specifically involved in this. So far, the language has been mostly aimed at the ATP. This particular news cycle is about, like you said, the ATP's proposed 30-year plan that Gaudenzi has been working on, that he's trying to get voted on this week at Wimbledon when all the players are together. The PTPA maintains that the players have not been able to review the 30-year plan in a transparent way, that they still have a lot of questions, and it's simply too soon to vote on it. So most of the, the public discourse from PTPA is aimed at the ATP. So we don't know what their relationship with the WTA is. I'm saying that's a failing on their part. Yes, I'm just... Listen, if you are trying to assess the merits of the PTPA, of their movement, of whether it's necessary, you're going to bring your own biases to the table as to what makes it viable, as to what you're looking to see come out of it, right? For me, I'm looking at an organization that's labeled itself as the Professional Tennis Players Association. You've taken tennis and you've taken tennis without any qualifier. So that means to me that you're going to be responsible or held responsible for charting a path forward for men and women. It's going to be an umbrella event. And remember, that was unclear, very unclear at the very start. And they've since pivoted and said, oh, yeah, 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 we're talking to the women too. And that's all we've really heard. I still want to see something concrete about that going forward and that it's not just well, we're, we're carrying them along too in whatever way that we can to assuage you Twitter warriors, podcast warriors, people who want to make a mountain out of a molehill for gender equality. They have talked a little bit more about the goals of the organization, which now that they have some structure uh, seems to be taking shape a little bit more. I'm not trying to be uncritical, but I want to be fair because... We've been talking about unionization for so many years. This is the biggest shakeup in tennis governance in a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And while it's not perfect, it is, uh, I mean, it's definitely something, right? It it may not work, but it is something. What was once very disorganized has found some structure. Yeah, yeah. Now, the ATP hits back hard in this rebuttal, saying that this separate entity, quote, provides a clear overlap divides the players, and further fragments the sport. This is classic union-busting language. Textbook. The 
Players Association is not a union, but of course, the ATP or any company could always choose to recognize an association as the voice of the players. The ATP is saying, well, we already have that, so we're not even going to sit down at the table with you guys because you're just overlapping with our Players Council. The PTPA would argue that the Players Council has no real power within the ATP structure. The ATP is also saying that they have equal power, which is patently false. It's completely false. So we've always told you that Djokovic, Pospisil, this movement, the PTPA, is with merit. Tennis is in need of restructuring, of players having a bigger say in their livelihoods and their futures. It doesn't mean that it that the movement doesn't get treated with a critical approach. Yeah. Obviously, people's opinions on this often fall along fandom lines. And honestly, even ours probably color the way that we look at it. I'm not saying we're outside of that, but... It is annoying that every time you tweet anything about the PTPA, you get an entire army. Right. Uh, but, like, the Federer Nadal response has been trash as well. Yeah. It's been yeah. towing the company line. Like, that's not what's needed here. I think we'll have a lot more stuff to say the next time we're, we record. Like, I think we'll have a lot more news to share. But something that I like to remember is that this quarreling, these wars over tennis governance is something that has been baked into tennis for decades, right? For a good 50 years mm-hmm. in the 20th century, we had all-out battles. As long as there's been open tennis, there's been hungry, hungry hippos chomping for some cash. <laughs> right? And even before that, we had so many breakaway organizations and professional tours, amateur tours, boycotts, bans. The 70s was like the Wild West. But what makes me so vigilant about the potential lip service being paid to women in this process is one of the reasons why tennis is so fragmented is because of the baked-in misogyny in professional sport and specifically here women's tennis from the jump. Right. From the jump, for decades, the ATP did not take the WTA seriously. Billie Jean King wanted... To join forces with the ATP. And they were like, we're good. So I think we have to understand the tensions and the competition between men's and women's tennis. And we'll be happy to be proved wrong. Mm -hmm. But historically, men have seen women's tennis as competition rather than finding solidarity in both of their struggles. What also sticks out to me with this issue, I know you want to move on from it. But lastly, I will say that maybe it's a function of not being able to get players together on the same page because of the calendar. We often see a lot of developments happen at slams or at, say, an Indian Wells, which we haven't had in the last two years. But it, it feels like the PTPA is playing catch-up. From the start, from the debut at the U.S. Open last year, the ATP has the advantage of controlling the narrative against an organization that seems to be disorganized. And so this organization, this recent debut of an advisory board of a chief executive, having a structure in place is a very important first step to then be taken seriously by the ATP. Because up until now, the ATP has been able to brush them aside and not 
open the door to that conference room because they didn't have to. Like, you're just a mm-hmm. bunch of ragtag, disheveled, raggedy players on Arthur Ashe, not properly socially distanced, <laughs> not wearing masks. Like, why should I take you seriously? No, they have the backing of as seedy as it is, like this billionaire. Right. Two billionaires. It's like, oh my God, I love tennis. I got a bunch of money. I can get to have influence, <laughs> you know? But the thing is, like, there are hedge funds courting professional tennis on the inside as well. So, so why shouldn't the PTPA have billionaires on their side too? You know, Sure. I'm just saying that maybe this is a bit, not just a critique, but also a measure of understanding for Djokovic and Pospisil that it is difficult to get all this together with people strewn all over the globe and not having everybody in the same place. Mm-hmm. So when I said before, like questioning the timing and like, why haven't you come up with this before in advance of this Wimbledon vote? I guess there's two sides to well, that. Well, this might have been tactical, right? Perhaps. This could have been like, hey, this is we're parachuting in and we've got like a whole organization put together now and we're ready. I also saw that they rolled out these statements from other professional associations in North yes, America. that was well done. Well done, but also only men's sports. This is what yes. I'm saying. Like, <laughs> everything that's been happening, any modicum of specificity... Or detail has been ATP related. Yeah. And uh, importantly, those are sports where the players are employed by the league, mm-hmm. not independent contractors. We're going to finish this episode with three things that we either like or dislike. And in some cases, both. And it's kind of like a pride edition of our things we like and dislike. We will start with Carl Nassib, who this week came out as the first openly gay active NFL player. Which is a big deal. It's kind of amazing that this has yet to happen. We've had players come out in many women's sports. In some men's sports. Robbie Rogers came out in MLS. Steve Davies came out in cricket. But not many male professional athletes have done so while they're active players. Michael Sam came out before his NFL draft. Never really was either given the opportunity or panned out in the NFL. And what I liked about this statement was just how matter-of-fact it was. He took to Instagram and did this, like, minute-long video that felt like it was being read from something, but he was just speaking off the cuff and very to the point and matter-of-fact. And I was like, you know, this is a win. I'll take this win. He's partnered with the Trevor Project and has pledged a bunch of money to it the nfl matched his donation which is awesome a hundred thousand an amazing organization which recognizes the struggles that lgbtq youth go through some people apparently uncovered that he is or was a registered republican voter which is just like okay can we have something nice please you just can never have something good that's unmitigated right <laughs> yeah apparently I'm... he was registered as a republican as late as 2019 mm-hmm. Now, to be fair, you know, you don't have, you're not obligated to vote with the party that you're registered for. And maybe it was like, oh, my parents were, so I just registered that way, you know. He certainly had friends who were because he was posting up in pictures with friends with Trump t-shirts. Oh, Lord. Oh, my God. Could not be me. And for folks who are like, well, y'all are doing the most. That's just speculative, blah, blah, blah. I'm here to tell you, I do not need a white gay Trump supporter. (laughs) I I rebuke it wholeheartedly. And I don't give a flying fuck about it. (laughs) We are in a day and age where if you are on the come up, 
Like, you need to have your socials checked because Miss Shakari Richardson, she experienced this as well this week, winning the U.S. national championships and then having a bunch of tweets come out where she's playing very fast and loose with some tangentially, if not explicitly, homophobic stuff. No, it is explicitly homophobic. Mind you, that was before she herself seems to have come out as a lesbian. Mm. This was two years ago. She managed to compare supporting Chris Brown to supporting Lil Nas X, saying that some of you hate on Chris Brown, but you are fans of Lil Nas X, which was crazy to her at the time. Uh, Connecting those dots takes like a lot of leaps. Uh, She is very vocal politically. Like if you go through her Twitter, she tweets a lot. You're bound to make a few missteps. That was a really bad one. We always support Team Jamaica in this house, so I'm not really concerned about it because we weren't going to be supporting her anyway. Not because of her personally, but no. because the GOAT, Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, and Elaine Thompson will be competing in the same race. And if she somehow is able to overcome these two greats, she still has to get through Dina Asher-Smith, Blessing Oyakbari, Natasha Morrison, Talu from Ivory Coast, like, and that's just, along with Richardson, those are just eight women who could make the final. There are literally handfuls of women who have run sub-11 seconds. That doesn't even take into account any of the other three Jamaican women who've run under 11 seconds, or a national junior record holder, or junior world record holder at this point. I get the enthusiasm, and as a Jamaican track fan... I've lived through this before. Who The only two who've ever really stuck in the last 25 years are Marion Jones. We know how that turned out. And previous second fastest woman in the world, Carmelita Jetta. And even then, Jetta didn't really live up to her promise on the international Olympic stage. I'm, I don't want to underestimate Miss Shakari here because she has incredible times. But Shelly Ann has the fastest time of the year. A Jamaican record, her own personal record. The only person who's ever run faster than her in the history of the sport is Miss Florence Griffith Joyner. And that was significantly faster than everybody who's ever lived, you know. You need not go any further. Exactly. There are some lessons here to be learned, I guess. What are they? Um, Don't run your moat against Jamaicans. Delete your tweets. Because Jamaicans have very long memories. Long, long... We're elephants. <laughs> When it comes to this stuff. <laughs> so if you feel you're out here going to be running a moat against Shelly. It's uh, it's too early to get cocky because, you know, this race has not happened yet. Shelly and... hasn't even decided what color hair she's wearing <laughs> for that fight. She's currently in the semifinals of the Jamaican National Championships. That's happening this weekend. I will just say Jamaicans will never let you hear the end of it if you're wrong. Well, and finally, we wanted to close with a little bit of a discussion on love victor yeah we blew through the second season of love victor in two days uh two weeks ago and i found it much more interesting than the first season Mm -hmm. they obviously have way more time than the movie love simon yeah they're clearly making the effort to move it to a more adult setting oh yeah move it to a more adult place where they're able to tackle things more explicitly yeah so there was i mean what you're saying there was more sex definitely. not just that i mean dealing with topical important stuff as well 
Mm-hmm. They did a lot of decentralizing white characters. Yeah. And whiteness on the show. So the movie that inspired the series is a white middle class cis gay man. And in Love, Victor, the series, you know, we have a, a young Latino gay a high school student. And the first season was very much like the movie. But the second season we get into, we're past the coming out phase. We're seeing his family and especially his mom reckon with what it means to have a gay son. Uh, As a Latino. mm -hmm. And we get to see Victor and another character of color sort of reckon with what it's like to date gay white men. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Right? White men who... Might be sticking up for you, but don't really try to understand where your family's coming from. It seems that we just appreciate it for different reasons than other people or other generations might. Where it was like, I'm shipping this as opposed to why is that happening? You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> I mean, we are in our 30s. We're not really we're, shipping like teen shows. We're also not the target um, audience, clearly. No. I do think the target audience is still straight girls mm. i mean they cast all straight people yeah which is pretty shocking i mean we had the advocate in this economy the front page the cover of the advocate be benji and victor two straight men talking about love victor <laughs> right. and they also centered benji in that photo do you remember that oh yes victor was hanging off of benji's shoulder benji is trash benji needs to be kicked to the curb <laughs> He needs to no longer be on the show. Mm-hmm. But it seems the fans still prefer him. It seems that young girls yeah. prefer him. But, you know, this is like the RuPaul's Drag Race fandom effect. You see very disturbing trends within fandoms of queer media. Favoring white characters. Favoring characters who skew closer to gender norms. Mm. Even within queer spaces. Like, this happens. We are so used to this. But outside of the uh the stuff that's happening around the text i felt like the show itself got better and got a little more daring and at least a little more willing to uh to dig into issues that are not front and center for a lot of their white audiences Mm -hmm. but they still those audience still by and large push those aside and say but benji's so cute right but i'm saying the text itself okay gotcha I was at the beach this past week, and beaches in Toronto, let me tell you, there's there's nothing, few things white people love more than bonfires. Like, it's crazy to me. Like, it could still be it's 70 degrees, but as soon as nighttime comes, we gotta have a fire. And without fail, the years that I've been going, every time dusk happens, white people are out here getting branches and starting fires, blah, blah, blah. And without fail, there's... Like, police patrol telling people, you listen, this is not on. This is against the rules. So I'm on the beach. It's getting dark. And I just look to my left and I see police coming. And my very first impulse is, what am I doing wrong? What what, what mm-hmm. do I got to hide? Da, 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 da. It's immediately on the back foot, right? And I'm no criminal, to be clear. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but then to the right of me is this gaggle of young white women, all of them white, who see the police approaching and they're laughing. And then the policemen come over and they're like, sorry, ladies, I really hate to do this, but 
And then they're like, yeah, we know, we know, but we just spent half an hour getting the fire going, da da da. And I was like raging inside. And all I could hear, I don't know what the woman said, but all I could hear was the cop saying, oh, we can't, we've got our cameras on. So I don't know if they were being offered to sit and have a mm-hmm. drink with them around the fire, blah, blah, blah. It was a big old laugh fest. Mind you, this beach is a historically gay space. And one of the few spaces in Toronto that's generally left alone mm-hmm. by police presence. What infuriated me about that experience, aside from the fact that these women did not for a moment consider that what they were doing wrong, which they knew they were doing wrong, was something that they should be fearful of with the police approaching them. Mm-hmm. It's like, that wasn't even a consideration. It was also the fact that I guarantee you, if you ask any of these women if they are allies, they would absolutely say yes. Oh, I'm sure all absolutely. of them were. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But in the blink of an eye, without even considering it, their second nature is to flaunt their privilege in this queer space and not give one second thought to it yeah i mean as a queer person i've never felt uh particularly comfortable with the police when by looks alone my whiteness offers me some measure of protection just the the sight of seeing people like kiki with the cops and try to sort of wiggle out of things that are clearly against the the law Mm -hmm. is a level of confidence that i certainly have never known and probably never will. It was very much, I'm going to use my feminine wiles against these straight men. These straight <laughs> right. cops, you know? And they right. were both happy to play the part. I just think about how that would have been different. It may still have been a pleasant interaction. And the history of me being on the beach tells me that it would have been a pleasant interaction if it were a group of men. Mm. But, like, not to that degree. And how how less pleasant would it have been had it been a group of black men? Do mm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's the level of unawareness that really got to me. So on that very dour pride note. (laughs) (laughs) This was our uh, merch promo Wimbledon preview pride episode. I think we managed to squeeze everything in. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. I'm Jonathan at tennis underscore John. We are the body serve uh, on Instagram and Twitter. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review. If you do not enjoy the show, please do not leave us a review. Because, um, <laughs> or at least consider your presitude before you do. Mm-hmm. Body Serve merch. Go to redbubble.com, search the Body Serve, or click in the link that'll be attached to this episode. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.